This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Ponco Chicken. Ponco Chicken, if you did not already know, is a unique spin on Japanese and Western cuisine. Uh, there are stores, if you're not familiar, um, all around the Atlanta area. Uh, there's one in Marietta now. There's one in Buckhead. There's one in Shambly. There's one in uh, Midtown. They're popping up everywhere because Ponco is awesome and uh, they're like family. So um, go check out Ponco if you have not already. It is the home of the award-winning Japanese American Chicken Tender. Just to brag on them a little bit more, they were Verizon Super Bowl Live top-selling vendor, three-peat Taste of Atlanta award winner, uh, Midtown Alliance best taste winner. Just they won all the awards because Ponco is great and Ponco is delicious. So if you are in the Atlanta area and are looking to try something new and good and delicious, go check out Ponco Chicken today and tell them that I sent you over. Uh, also, if you have not already, go check out chasemonspodcast.com. It's where all of my episodes to all of my podcasts are, all of my writing that I do, uh, more information on me and who I am um, and why you should be listening to this podcast and reading my work and all of that great stuff. Go do that. Go to Chase Thomas Podcast today. If you're an Apple podcast listener, go ahead and leave me five stars and a rating and a review. That's great. I need it. Um, it helps the show continue to grow and all of that good stuff. Um, you can listen on SoundCloud, Spotify, like I said, Apple, Google Play, everywhere where you can get your podcast. The Chase Thomas Podcast will be there. So go do that today. Um, all right. I think that's everything. We can get into today's episode. Uncle Darren, let's go. Chase Thomas Podcast. The Chase Thomas Podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, welcome back to a Tuesday evening edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast. Connor Ryan is here of the Boston Sports Journal, one of my favorite people to talk hockey with. And guess what, folks? He's not a fucking cop, and he is here. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a cop. Yeah, I, I, I'm prepared for this now. I, I know fully to expect that a pot is dropped, so I'm fully ready for it now, Chase. That's good because I'll probably never get over it. Um, it's one of my favorite things, and unfortunately, I'm a very <laughs> stubborn person who doesn't have a very, uh, very uh, strong imagination. So I, I'm, I'm going to stick with what I know, and what I know is that um, when I hear you talk, all I hear is the departed. And uh, hey, it's a, it's a classic movie. I, I've, you know, you, there's much, much uh, worse movies you could pick from. If you were dropping like Fever Pitch with Jimmy Fallon or something then we'd have a problem, but the pattern, there's no issues there. Yeah. Or, you know, we could, I could maybe transition to that SNL skit, um, with, um, Casey Affleck where I, there's that, that, that one is pretty good. It's so the Duncan good. One. Yeah. Where the Duncan 
best part of my day is a duck. Like I love it. Like, everything I love it. It was a joke, Donnie. It's oh my god. <laughs> everything about that like three minutes is just incredible. <laughs> Go to Duncan, take a dump, and then uh, just everything about that is just incredible. <laughs> and it ends with him just throwing the Dunkin' Donuts coffee at the guy's car. It's it's incredible. As one does. As one does. A, a very normal morning in Boston. I, I, I can only imagine that's what happens every morning at Dunkin' Donuts in Boston. People just throwing coffee at each other. Um, speaking of people who might be throwing coffee to each other, at each other because they're annoyed and upset, it's the Oilers fans because they cannot have nice things and Connor McDavid is out to maybe up to a month um, with a groin injury. So when you saw this, what was your first thought about what this means for the Oilers um, and a really tricky time for them. Yeah, obviously um, I'm sure like most people I'm thinking the Oilers are in deep, deep trouble uh, when you can, I mean, you look, there's so many, you know, star players, guys who impact the team that play such a key role in their success. But I think you look across, especially hockey, but in terms of maybe other sports as well, I don't think there's any star player that holds as much sway over his team's success like Connor McDavid does. And granted, you know, Oilers have a few other solid players. Obviously, Leon Dreisaitl is going to have to pick up the slack now that McDavid's going to be out for, at the minimum, you know, two and a half, three weeks. Um, but even with just Dreisaitl kind of running the show, I mean, you saw those guys primarily play quite a bit quite a bit with each other, you know, dur- during the season. And McDavid's just so good in terms of what he brings, just in all facets of the game, but especially with that speed. His ability to play with pace, his ability to kind of just, you know, make goals kind of happen out of nowhere. It seems like every time the Bruins play him, at least when we're able to see him here in Boston, there's at least one of one or two plays where he kind of makes a, a quality scoring chance on his own out of kind of making something out of nothing. And it's something you just have to kind of chalk up to just his skill. And well, they're not going to get that now. And when you look at, you know, the way their, their season's been going and how much they rely on him on a regular basis, you know, you're talking about a forward who plays, you know, 23 24 plus minutes a night who drives so much of of that of that roster especially when you know there's a lot of you know not pro nhl talent kind of in the lower levels there in the bottom six and at the bottom of the of the blue line so who's a guy like him even for a, a small stretch is a huge blow for this oilers team that you know even if they're currently in the playoff picture right now i think they have like 64 points on on the year which in the pacific you know all it takes is a few you know bad games in a row and you're all suddenly out of the playoff picture. Cause I think Vegas and Calgary are, are tied with them right now. And I think the coyotes who have been stumbling quite a bit have 63 points. So again, you hit a stretch here with the Oilers where, you know, it's, they go three and seven or, or, you know, anything like that. It could, it could show disaster for a team that when you factor in how much they rely on him and how tight the Pacific is, uh, you know, they could all of a sudden be out of the playoff picture very, very soon. If they really, you know, hit a rough patch here, which, all things considered, I think most of us most of us are expecting them to do just because of how much McDavid impacts that team. Which is good for us as uh, just neutral observers of Edmonton because that's just a weird organization owned by a weird team. And they made a lot of interesting changes and we're going to have to see what happens with their new front office. This is their first chance at really uh, being active at the trade deadline um, and making a playoff push in a, in a while. So I do wonder what... What do you think their mindset is right now? What What do you think they need? Not necessarily just filling in for McDavid, but what do you think this Oilers team needs to stay stay afloat in the Pacific? Uh, I mean, when you look at just the overall constitution of their roster, I mean, I feel like it's 
it's one of those tough spots for them because obviously you have to view the trade deadline as, you know, how they're going to handle it in the immediate future right now without McDavid. But even if you look at how, you know, what McDavid brings to the team and what they could pick up with the trade deadline, it's tough to find kind of that one kind of, you know, missing piece that they're, that they need for a sustained playoff push. Like you look at a team like, all right, Pittsburgh just got Jason Zucker and that solves kind of one of their main problems. Look at the Bruins are looking for a top six winger. Uh, the Blues are looking for a top six winger. Oilers have so many kind of, you know, holes in their ship that, you know, is, you know, getting one other guy going to really help, you know, turn the tide in terms of, you know, them going up against a team like St. Louis or, or any of these other kind of big guns on the Western Conference. So I think when you look at the Oilers mindset, I figure right now it has to be, all right, let's see how we do treading water until McDavid comes back. If, you know, if stuff really hits the fan, then they have to reevaluate how the season's going because, I don't know, if, if they go, again, like three, three and seven or something like that, hit a rough patch, and McDavid's set to come back, but they're out of the playoff picture at that point. Like, what's the one guy that you're going to, you know, trade for, that you're going to trade, you know, these assets for that's going to really, you know, put them back over the top? Like, is adding Chris Kreider to the mix going to solve the problems, you know, on the blue line for the Oilers? Or is it going to help them when, like, you know, half of their lines they can't really rely on on a regular basis? So it's a, a tricky spot for the Oilers to be in. Obviously, I think considering the, the poor luck of that franchise over the last decade plus you'd like for them to kind of go for it but it's a tough spot to be in for for um you know the management over there because you know i don't know what's the one move that's going to be that's going to put them over the top especially if they really you know take a dip now that mcdavid's out ultimately what is your gut telling you what do you think the oilers do i ultimately think it's going to be typical oilers fashion where everything could go wrong you know will go wrong where uh, I could see them kind of holding steady, seeing how it is until McDavid comes back, realizing that they desperately need something to turn the tide because they're going to drop in the standings. But then by that point, you know, half these trades are going to be agreed to with other teams. They're going to pick up some like guy who is like, you know, 15th on the trade board, the guy that's like not going to influence, you know, how they're going to finish down the stretch. Like when, you know, Ryan Dezingo was a top, you know, a top trade target last year, but he didn't really live up to the billing in Columbus. Like a guy like him is who the Oilers are going to end up getting, and it's not going to do much to factor to kind of swing the fortunes back in their favor. That's what I'm. That's what I'm predicting. Yeah, it just feels like the cards are gonna gonna fall down in Edmonton, and also, um, like we all expected, the Vancouver Canucks just uh, running roughshod over the Pacific. Just what everyone had before the season started that they were going to be this good. Um, Pacific's just a bloodbath, and then you have the the whole new Arizona Coyotes. Uh, just scandal that uh, is extremely interesting and extremely weird um, that I still don't a hundred percent understand. Um, there was one big trade though, which I think has been universally panned by most NHL analysts and observers. Even Penguins fans themselves are pretty confused about what just happened. But um, why do the Zucker trade if you're Pittsburgh? Is there a case for it, or is this pure devil's advocate on your front uh, to answer this question? <laughs> Uh, I mean, I think when in doubt, you look at kind of, um, you know, what, what Pittsburgh has done over the last couple of years in terms of how active they've been on the trade market. And we know that, you know, their management team is not afraid to kind of, you know, flip kind of these pieces in and out and around kind of those key cogs, guys like Crosby and Malkin. So I figure right now, if you look at kind of the way the, the Penguins are playing right now um, and considering the fact that, you know, I think most people are shocked that they're even in this position. I think they're only four points away 
from uh, overtaking the capitals uh, in the Metro. So I think for them, I think the mindset is like, all right, listen, we, you know, we're playing well right now, but we could use one more established, you know, top six guy. So, you know, you look at Alex Galchenyuk, who obviously has not worked out there in Pittsburgh. Um, they trade away a first round pick, which, you know, you have to figure soon enough, you know, the, the well's going to dry up there in terms of how many first rounders there, you know, they're trading away, but you still look at it from, you know, the perspective of what they're going for. It's like, all right, well, we've been playing extremely well with so many injured guys out, you know, Crosby's obviously now getting back into a groove. Malkin's, you know, as advertised, you know, they have so many guys kind of playing above what people expected of them. And you've got, you know, the case where, let's say you get to the playoffs and obviously no one really knows what's going to go on with Jake Gensel and how bad his, you know, how, how long he's going to be out. He could be out the whole rest of the year with that shoulder surgery he underwent. So Philly here, if you're Pittsburgh, you figure, you know, might as well screw it, you know, might as well go for it. Get an established score, like a guy like Zucker who plays with a lot of pace, who I believe is going to get a lot of minutes with, uh, on Crosby's line. So again, I guess, you know, sooner or later, again, that, that well is going to dry up in terms of trading away these first round picks and these, these assets. But I figure if you're, if you're Pittsburgh, why not, you know, why not go for it? Considering, you know, they're, they're playing well, they're, they're, they're right behind the Capitals. They're a team that, you know, is built for the playoffs in terms of having those veteran guys, having guys that can play with speed, you know, have some bigger guys that can throw their weight around. Like I think adding a guy like Zucker really kind of, shores up any uncertainty they might have considering kind of no one really knows what to expect from Gensel if he's even going to be able to play again this year. Yeah. And I wonder too, when you, and this speaks to, like you said, with the way the Penguins have operated in years past and also uh, it's worked out. They've won multiple championships. This group yeah. is, is one. Um, but the other thing too, to think about with them is it kind of reminds me of the Blackhawks in a way mm-hmm. where the Blackhawks had that great run, obviously. And then it just, it finally fell apart and the Kings went through this where it's just, it's a lot like to do that year after year. It, there's a lot of wear and tear. It just, it's really hard to keep a good thing going um, in today's NHL uh, for several years. And they've won with these guys for the most part. But I do think it's like, if you're a fan of Pittsburgh, I think you're just like, Hey, this is cool that this team and this organization still thinks that we can win the Stanley cup again this year. And they're going to go for it. They're not going to waste any more. Like, they're not going to waste Malkin and Crosby and everybody else. They're like, no, even though they locked up their young guys, like they had a great deal earlier this year where the, I mean, that four-year contract um, to lock up their defensive line where it's like they have their young guys waiting in the wings. They have their older guys um, that are going to be able to play for a little bit longer, but there's like a natural transition. So if you look at their cap and you look at the way they're building their team, you're like, this makes a lot of sense. And I like the mixture between young guys and vets. And then you read the quote from Hornquist where he's, he just said, what an opportunity we have. And this is regards to the Zucker trade. We have a good team. You don't have uh, many chances to make something special. And this group is good. And I think that is the biggest thing is like, I think this is the kind of move that if the locker room is unsure with where the team wants you to go, or there might be a disconnect in the locker room between the front office and the guys you're actually playing because they're just like, I wonder if the front office believes that we can actually do it. If they're going to make a win now, swing for the fences, move to really uh, push us to that next level to push us against the Capitals and the Bruins and the Blues and everybody else. Um, this we We're curious if they have faith in us to do that. And I think mm-hmm. trading for Zucker signals to them and those guys, hey, keep putting your body in the line, keep busting your ass because we made a win now move and we believe that you can actually win it all this year. I think that's like an underrated part of making these kind of trades. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can even draw parallels to kind of the situation the Bruins are in both this year and last year, where, again, they're, they're kind of set for the future when you'll get guys like Charlie McAvoy and David Pasternak, these guys who are going to be, you know, ideally part with the Bruins for the next decade plus, and they're signed to pretty solid deals right now. But obviously, when you look at guys like Bergeron and Krejci and, and Marchand, obviously the onus is to really max out these next, you know, one, two, three years with its current core. So I think even if it involves, you know, giving away, you know, some assets for the future, you already have that foundation to kind of build off of, you know, like Pittsburgh still has, you know, some of these young guns like, like Gensel, who they can kind of rely on going forward. So might as well give up those, some of those assets going forward and, and maxing out what you have right now. Cause again, all it takes is one hot team to really go on a Stanley cup run. And as you said, like that, that confidence you get from knowing that, you know, the management is with you going all in. Like you look at last year with the Bruins where, all right, third line center was a problem for the first like five months of the year. And, you know, what is what is the message kind of sent to the players when Don Sweeney goes out to get a guy like Charlie Coyle to shore up that spot, to get a, a winger like Marcus Johansson? Like, it obviously, I think, as you said, plays a big part in letting these guys know, like, all right, we have the personnel now. We're already confident in our own ability, but we're getting back up. These proven NHL guys who can really make an impact. So I think, as, as you said, like, that, that can do so much for, you know, teams' confidence and kind of building that momentum from the playoff staff. For sure. So I'm interested to see what other teams um... – do to respond i think it's gonna be interesting do you think the bruins are gonna be active i mean this isn't in my list of things i wanted to ask you about but um being the bruins guy do you think that they're gonna make any big adjustments mid-season this year yeah i think definitely i think when you look at kind of the the big issue as it kind of has been the case for most of the last couple of years is kind of shoring up that that top six uh right wing spot next to david Krejci, and they've had a few guys shuffle in that have you know, it held their own, but I think for the Bruins, you know, you look at a, a spot that's so crucial in terms of maxing out the effectiveness of that top six. I still expect them to be in the mix for guys like, you know, Chris Kreider is the one that everyone kind of talks about. He's kind of probably the main trade target for many teams. Obviously, if you're, you're a Bruins fan, you're drawn to him because he's a local kid, went to BC. So they've got that connection, which is pretty much what they did last year with Charlie Coyle. Um, but I look at, you look at other guys like Toffoli, um, you know, a guy like Andres Case, who, you know, could be a potential option if they want to look at the Ducks in terms of, you know, move like that, where then you can get into, you know, dumping cap or stuff like that in terms of a bigger deal. But I expect Don Sweeney to be very busy in terms of addressing that spot, because obviously, you know what you have in that Bergeron line. You know how good David Krejci can be if he has an effective, uh, effective winger to work with. Um, so I think if they max that out, it, it gives it can really put the Bruins over the top in terms of making another deep, deep Stanley Cup run this spring. Yeah, uh, I think the Bruins will be fine, and I think they're gonna they're gonna do some as long as they don't play the Red Wings in the playoffs. Yeah, because typical hockey, like Red Wings, like might be one of the worst you know hockey teams assembled in the last you know couple of decades, and the Bruins for some reason cannot beat them. So. That's like that. I mean, if there's any way to describe what hockey is, it's like watching the Bruins play this horrible Red Wings team because for some godforsaken reason they cannot beat them. Hmm. What have they said when you've asked them about it? Like, did it's what have they what have they mustered up in response? Well, to that? well, that's the the one good thing of the the hockey cliches of like, well, that's hockey is that's pretty much their go to thing. You know, the, the the tried and true. Anyone can win any given night and. I guess you can point at like a guy like Jonathan Bernier and how he's played in net when the Bruins seem to play him, but still, like I, I think it's one of those ones you have to 
shrug your shoulders and go on to the next one. But they play Detroit uh, at TD Garden on Saturday. So if it continues on for another game, it's going to be a pretty bad look considering how much the Lightning are kind of gaining ground on them in the Atlantic. Do we love the Seattle Kraken? Is that what we want? Uh, personally, I don't. I, I mean, I, I, I've always been, I'm hoping I've been a big fan of the, the Sockeyes. Like, I, I enjoy, I think it works well. It's got the regional, you know, the regional tie-in. So I was a fan of the Sockeyes. But at the very least, I'm glad that they're going kind of outlandish, you know, with, like, the Kraken. Like, if you're going to go for an expansion team, especially in a place that's excited for, you know, bringing in, opening up this new market, I think you have to go outlandish. So if they got, like, this huge like monstrosity, like on the ice, you know, when they, when they start games and they, they really roll with it, then I'm all for it. Like it's not my number one pick, but it's better than like, you know, people mention like the Metropolitans, which is what, you know, that old Seattle team was called like anything like that. I, I, you know, I think that's a snooze fest. So I think, you know, as long as you keep on, you know, getting creative, I'm all for the Kraken, but it just wasn't my number one pick. I love the idea of a big ass octopus being thrown on the ice. Yeah, is, like, yeah, yeah, like we need like the fish in Nashville. I just want a big octopus thrown onto the ice um, every game. Exactly. So again, it's you know the more Atlantish, the, the better. I think when you look at these expansion teams, and like honestly, they could name them whatever. And I think people in Seattle will be amped up. But I think the more you kind of build up that hype with you know promotions and you know the way they kind of market it. I think it all ties in. I mean, look at like Vegas, you know, obviously the success that first year helped out quite a bit, but you look at kind of the theatrics and the way they kind of built it up and their way of marketing it to that, that, you know, that community and and getting fans from other markets to come to Vegas to watch them play. I think there's so many things that Seattle can do to kind of build that unique brand. And I think, you know, one of the easiest ways is to, you know, take on a kind of unique monitor. So Kraken again, not my favorite, but I still think, you know, there's a lot of potential. You can do a lot of stuff with it. And the most important part is keep the color scheme. It better be green and yellow. That's all I want. Oh, green and yellow. Oh, yeah. Exactly. You know, I think, like, the color scheme you've seen, like, on the website, like that, like, you know, uh, like, weird, like, not scarlet, but, like, red, pink, and, like, that, yeah, that like, powder that. blue, which, like, uh, not a, yeah, no, I want to keep, you know what, like, keep it uniform, I think, for a city like that, so. Hundred percent, I agree. Like Pittsburgh, they do it right. Um, bonus part of this podcast, that I wanted to ask you about Doug Wilson. San Jose has been awesome for twenty years. They have not won the cup, but they've been great year after year. They've come close. They've been steady. They've won a just a bunch of games. Do you believe that the Sharks actually believe in Wilson? And are you more interested in what they do at the deadline? Because they're a couple of games under 500. This isn't their season. It's just been uh, not a bottom falling out season. Cause they're not like the Red Wings or anything, but they're just a really average hockey team. That's just not going to make the playoffs. Um, do you believe Wilson's still the guy long-term in, C- in San Jose? And also what do you think he does at the deadline? Because this is his first opportunity in a long time to actually be a seller. And the Sharks have pieces. Yeah, I think, you know, from San Jose's perspective, I figure, like, you know, obviously they've been very disappointing this year. I don't think many teams, you know, many people expected them to kind of take this sharp of a drop considering, you know, um, you know how good they've been over the last two decades, how well they played last year in the playoffs. Um, but I, I figure if you're either, you know, just a general hockey fan or a San Jose fan, you had to feel like this, you know, decline is going to have to start eventually. And 
I think could maybe it's happened, you know, a year or two quicker than most people expected. But I, I mean, you look at just that team and how many, you know, contracts they have tied up to guys like, you know, I think they're paying like Carlson and, uh, um, Brent Burns and Vlasic, like almost like 27 million for the next couple of, couple of years. Um, they don't have a first round pick this year in 2020, which would have come really helpful, you know, in a very deep draft coming up. Um, I think if you're San Jose, I think you have to look to see what, um, you know, what, what they end up doing at the trade deadline. Cause again, it's tough to move quite a few of those contracts, given the, you know, the money tied up and how tight they are up against the cap. But there's a few, you know, kind of younger guys or like a guy like LeBanc who they could see if they can get some sort of return for. Um, so I think it'd be interesting to see what, what he ends up doing in terms of, you know, seeing what pieces he can sell off and see if he can kind of jumpstart this kind of transition period for them. Because look at right now, they're kind of, you know, they got a ways to go in terms of, you know, fully getting started with like a, a rebuild where you kind of look at like how the Kings are right now, where they had like that, that gap in terms of bringing up these young players because they've been using so many picks. You have, you know, veteran older guys who aren't producing tied up to crappy contracts. So you kind of see what the Kings are and you imagine the San Jose Sharks are kind of building towards that same fate. Uh, it might be even, might be in an even tougher position than the Kings are just in terms of how much some of these guys are signed for. Like a guy like Carlson, who's going to be costing them over 11 million a year for the next quite a few years going forward. So if I'm in San Jose, like again, it, this, this has been a brutal season. They've had some like obviously crap luck with, you know, like, uh, you know, losing guys like Meyer and stuff like that. But I, I think if you're them, you have to see what they end up doing in the deadline to see if they can get this, you know, rebuild or this retooling started. Because I think, you know, you have to imagine it's going to be some rough times ahead for them. So it's all about how they can kind of speed up this rebuilding process rather than being a team like the Kings who are kind of stuck in the mud right now. Give me your team that you think going to do the most, the most before the trade deadline. Give me your dark horse that you're like, hmm. This is this is somebody that I think is actually going to be way more active than we thought. Ooh, wow, that's a tough one. I mean, I could see the Bruins making at least like a couple of moves. If you know, obviously, I'm a bit biased in terms of just watching them every day and seeing what they do. But I could see them being a team that looks at this kind of cut window and says, you know, listen, we've got young pieces, we've got draft picks. You know, they they have the means to trade for you know a, a top six winger and you know, add like a, a bottom six guy in terms of, you know, you, you saw last year during the Stanley Cup final where they got kind of knocked around by the St. Louis Blues. And I think you have to kind of find that that balance between skill and, and speed and size. And, you know, whether that's, you know, getting a guy like Josh Anderson from the Blue Jackets who, you know, kind of is that prototypical kind of guy that people covered in the playoffs as a, a Tom Wilson type or, um, you know, you look at maybe a guy on, on defense, you know, they've had a little bit of a, a vacancy on their third D pairing. So maybe a guy like Brendan Dillon on the San Jose Sharks is the guy they look to pick up, a guy who's obviously got a lot of size, who can play a lot of minutes. So I can see the Bruins being very, very active at the deadline. It's all about how they're able to kind of uh, manage their, their cap space because you have to figure that a guy like David Backus would probably have to get moved in and trade or a guy like Kevin Miller, who's been on the, the long-term injury reserve all year, would have to stay on that list. So they've got some balancing acts to do, but I still think, you know, they've got the resources and they've got the need, especially, to kind of go all in this year and go over the top and see how they fare. Connor Ryan, always a pleasure, sir. What can we check out from you this week on uh, the writing front? Yeah, we've got a, a 
couple of products coming up. Obviously, uh thing I like about, you know, covering the Bruins is they're a pretty uh, good group of guys to talk to in terms of talking about stuff kind of away from the game. So I had a fun kind of story going up last week talking about how they all, uh, you know, pick who their seatmate is on, on team flights and how it's a competition. And it's a pretty cutthroat one at that. So I had that come out uh, last week and this week we're doing more in terms of uh, travel, you know, growing up with, you know, how these guys were all on sleeper buses or, you know, had to do these, you know, horrible mic tournaments that, you know, were up in the middle of, you know, middle of nowhere they had to go to. So I got some pretty good uh, responses from them. So I expect that to come out this week. And again, uh, after every Bruins game, we have tons of content on, on our site at bostonsportsjournal.com. So uh, be sure to follow it there. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Connor Ryan underscore 93. Go do that, Connor. Keep up the great work. Thank you for making the time as always, my friend. And I will check back in with you soon. Sounds good, man. Thanks. All right, we're back on the Chase Thomas Podcast. I am now joined from SB Nations, Kansas Jayhawks blog, uh, Landon Fields. Landon, good evening. How are you doing? I'm doing well. You you were very close on being correct. We're not actually affiliated with SB Nation. That's a close miss. Oh, with a Rock Truck blog. I why did I say that? I why am I? I'm losing my mind. Rock Truck blog. I, yes, not SB Nation. Let me clarify, folks. There, it's it's real. Not it's, yes. It's very easy to get it confused. There's Rock Chalk blog, Jayhawk talk, and Rock Chalk talk. Rock Chalk talk is the SB Nation yes. one. Yes. So I look at both of those, and they look the same. So that's and that's that, completely fair. <laughs> I go to a lot of websites, man. If you look at my um, my daily reading list and all the different just spreadsheets that I have to look at different stuff, um, it you'd be like, oh, this this makes sense. And also, you're an insane person. It's all, all straight. Um, but there you go. This is a this uh, this is a great start because I also could have easily confused you for Landry Fields, New York Nick legend and former Stanford Cardinal Landry Fields, but I didn't do that. So uh, you know, take the wins where you can. I, I think I you said he played for the Knicks. Yes, he did. I think I remember him. I'm only 19 years old, so if if a basketball player played like pre 2010, it's only like a vague memory. But I think I remember him, and I think that's honestly a reason why I got into basketball. For being honest, Landry Fields got you in. Yeah, because my last name is also Fields, so you know. Okay, I think you're the only person on planet Earth that got into basketball <laughs> because of Landry Fields. Well, I was probably the He's only person. No, I was probably the only person watching that Pistons Knicks game that day, as well. So, yeah, you're. I mean, it was the Mike D'Antoni era. He had a great handshake with Jeremy Lin. Um, him and Lin were really close, and that was the pre-Mellow trade and all that kind of stuff. And right. people were talking themselves into Landry Fields and what he could be and all this kind of stuff. And it was really just like, nope, he's he's actually bad and he can't shoot, and uh, he's gonna be out of the league in a couple of years. So that's ultimately what happened. Um, but we are not going to talk any more Landry Fields or Stanford basketball or Knicks basketball on this podcast because the Kansas Jayhawks are. Very good again, folks. Uh, they're a good basketball team. Um, I think what we all, or I guess most people associate this season with Kansas is the chair and fan incident and everything else from all the, the yeah. pictures from that dark Kansas, day. Kansas State game. Yeah. Um, I don't think it was a dark day. I think it was a great day. It was, it was, was a very, it was a very entertaining yeah. day. I will get, definitely give you that. 
Right. We need more of that. And I almost read a column on just like college basketball needs more of this crazy shit happening. Like you need more of the college football type stuff where you need just crazy fan interactions. You need crazy just developments. You need that kind of stuff to get uh, the eyeballs on it because Kansas can't even get on TV against West, West Virginia. I, that is, so that is incredible. <laughs> it, I don't know why ESPN plus has seemingly taken over. I mean, I know I understand that the big 12 has done their whole contract and all that. I don't know why they did that. I remember when the schedule like first came out in full and all like the TV, you know, TV schedule came out. And I remember you know, I saw the first two games, the, the exhibition games that KU always plays, they were on ESPN+. Plus. I was like, okay, that makes sense. You know, there's going to be like 35 people that watch those games combined that aren't in Allen anyway. So that's fine. And I scrolled down, and there was a couple more like Monmouth and East Tennessee State were on ESPN+. Plus. I was like, okay, that's a little weird. But I guess, you know, put two regular season games on there. It's fine. And then there's like four Big 12 games on ESPN+. Plus. Both the West Virginia games, which has been, you know, KU pretty much always beats West Virginia and Allen. West Virginia always beats KU up in Morgantown. It's been a pretty back-and-forth rivalry. And they're putting both of those on ESPN+. Plus. It kind of blew my mind in the worst way. Um, I still don't understand it, and I hope that some congresswoman that I saw on Twitter today can get that taken care of. Hey, wouldn't rule it out. Crazier things have happened. Um, Kansas, though. So Correct. there was a really good piece by Ken Palm on uh, The Athletic this week um, outlining why this year in college basketball is very different than other years in that the best teams are all more defense-oriented mm-hmm. and very rarely is that the case where you have to be good at both um, offense and defense to really contend year over year and most of the best teams in college basketball who end up winning it all um, are – more like they're extremely efficient in both areas but they're still more efficient in offense than they are in defense and this year that's not the case like the best teams are not that baylor's not that kansas isn't that um gonzaga's not that like you just go up and down the list and you're like oh the the best teams in college basketball just don't fit that um offense heavy approach um like in years past um is that a fair assessment for kansas do you think they are too are they for you too reliant on their defense? And um, there are more offensive questions than you would, you would like at this point in the season. Yeah, I think that's certainly true. That was actually a, been a, been a heavy topic of um, our KU podcast inside the paint on rock track blog over most of the season. We we've been wondering all year, can Kansas eventually turn it on come, come March, come the big 12 tournament and come the NCAA tournament. Because Bill Self has had, Bill Self had his struggles in the NCAA tournament. I'll say it. He's made three Final Fours, but he also has many Elite Eight losses. It's been it's been well documented. We don't know, and I really don't know if Kansas this year their defense is really really good. I don't know if they can have a national championship level season. I don't know if they can win six games in a row in March with their offense currently. They beat TCU. In their, in their last game on Saturday by 14, and you'll take a 14-point road conference win you know, every day of the week in college basketball, but they only scored 60 points. And I just, you know, TCU is one thing, but what happens when you get in the tournament and you play top 10 teams two, three times in a row down the stretch, I just don't know if that's sustainable uh, come the end of the year. So what is your gut telling you? Do you think the way they're playing is sustainable right now? 
No. I, it is for the regular season. It is in the Big 12 because the Big 12 is very defensive-oriented. Baylor is a very, very good team in the Big 12. I wouldn't count Kansas out of the Big 12 race, but come March, I don't believe it's sustainable. How do they fix it? Like, is there anything that you see the way that they're playing that you're like, okay, if they adjust here, they could maybe um, just fix a lot of those efficiency issues on offense? Do you think Devin Dotson just needs to average 40 points a game instead of 17? <laughs> maybe that's the maybe that's all they need. I mean, if you could get to 40, you never know, right? But um, no, I mean, realistically, I think it just comes down to honestly just take more threes. And, you know, you were joking about the DeSoto fight earlier and, you know, very fairly. But that honestly was, in a weird, really weird, dark way, a positive thing for the Kansas team. Because DeSosa, Sylvia DeSosa got suspended a bunch of games. And their other, their, their secondary center, uh, David McCormick, he also got suspended two games. So Bill Self was forced to play four and five guards. And then eventually, you know, after doing that for a game or two, he, he came out and said, yeah, that's what we're going to stick with all year for the rest of the season. We're going to go four guards around Udoka Azubuki in the middle. And we, we thought in the Kansas community, we thought, like, hey, here it comes. You know, maybe, maybe faster, play a little more up-tempo, play with more threes being taken. But it really, they, they've not increased their three-point percentage. They've not increased really even their three-points taken, three-pointers taken, if they took more threes, I would be way more positive about this team because eventually they'll go in because I think they have capable, if not great shooters. There's a couple very good ones, uh, especially like Christian Brown, who's averaging, I believe, over 40% from three. Same with Isaiah Moss in the high 30s. But I think they just have to take more of them. They're only taking uh, – I have the stats pulled up. Let's see. Um, I don't know. Math is hard. But they're not taking very many per game, probably only about maybe even 15 a game, which is not very many in the modern era of basketball. So I, I think taking more threes would be a big step, and just playing faster in general would also help this team a lot. It is interesting because the rest of college basketball is taking more threes across the board, right? Unless yeah. you're like Auburn or Kansas, where you're like, no, screw that. I think <laughs> Alabama has completely changed the way they play from Avery Johnson to Bird and um you just watch certain teams and you're like, oh, they're playing uh, just not because none of it's really all that NBA heavy. Um, Correct. It's just more uh, this is more efficient and it's more of like a Jay Wright Villanova effect, I feel like, than anything, because it seems like a lot more teams just look like Villanova than yeah. uh, in years past. Um, who do you think they match up more um, closely with Baylor or West Virginia? I would I would say they probably match up better with Baylor just because Baylor doesn't quite have the size that West Virginia has. Cause I'll be actually be interested in this game coming up um, against West Virginia because they have Oscar Shibwe and Eric Culver down low. And that if, if KU continues to go with four guards, that could be a, a bit of a mismatch. Um, I think they match up well with Baylor across the board, even though Baylor came in to Allen Fieldhouse and won by 12, 11 or 12. But I, I would take my chances against Baylor probably before I would against West Virginia. Who do you think's the best team in the Big 12 right now between the three? I think it's Kansas, to be honest. And I know that's going to sound biased to every single person listening to this show, but Baylor has flirted with losses against everyone they've played pretty much in the Big 12, and that includes Oklahoma State, 
the other night who only has one Big 12 win. That includes Texas, who's not having a very good season either. They've come so close to losing a lot of games in the conference, whereas Kansas, you know, maybe they haven't completely dominated everybody, but they've looked pretty good. They've looked better than Baylor, I think, against most of the conference opponents. Um, heading into the final stretch of the season, what are you what are you looking for out of this Kansas team to really sell you on? Like, okay, you clearly think you're the best team in the Big Twelve, but how do you what do you want to see for uh, them to compete against San Diego State, the Louisville's, the the Dukes, the Florida States, the Seton Halls, the you know just all the really good teams in college basketball this year, the Gonzagas that um really matter to you and like getting over that hump and really having a special season? I think one thing specifically, I would like to see Devon Dotson shoot a higher percentage from three, or if he just starts shooting a higher percentage from three, you could say if that starts to happen, all of a sudden, then you have a guy who can really like take over a basketball game. Cause you see it in flashes from Udoka as a being able just to get, you know, eight points in three minutes and all of a sudden, you know, a Kansas run is happening and the game's going to end soon. But they don't have a guy that can just get the ball in his hands and do whatever he wants with it. Because Devon and Dotson, he can get to the rim really well, but he's not a great shooter. If he could start to shoot a higher percentage from three, he's only shooting 28% from three this year. If he can even shoot just in the low 30s, I think all of a sudden that could really elevate Kansas's ceiling. And then also just what I mentioned earlier with just three-point shooting across the board, if they can start to really knock down between eight and 11 threes a game in that range, I think this team becomes exponentially more dangerous. Okay. What is, what's the uh, 2020 recruiting front looking like for Kansas right now? Uh, it's, looking, it's looking pretty good. They have the number one JUCO recruit in the country um, coming in who is supposed to be a really good scorer. They also have Bryce Thompson, uh, who is a five-star recruit, um, who, who will factor in or supposed to factor in pretty well next season. They have a power forward. His name's Jethro Muskinen. Um, I apologize to Jethro if he ever hears this, and I just completely destroyed his name. But um, it, it's looking like a pretty good class. I, I and Kansas will always get a pretty decent class. I think this class is going to be. You know, about as good. They have a five-star recruit, the best Juco player in the country, uh, a power forward in, in Muskin who can shoot the three a little bit. So I think next year they'll, they're going to factor in to be you know, just as much of the conversation as they've ever been. Do you think they're looking towards next year? Do you think this is a team that um, is ahead of schedule, behind schedule? Like, do you, Is this about where you saw Kansas being before the season? I would, I would say so. I definitely thought they would be better than last year. Um, last year was a little bit of a down year for Kansas. And I know you, you have to put that qualifier for Kansas because most teams would, would kill for a four seed in the NCAA tournament. But I think, I think this team is about as good as I thought they would be maybe a little worse on, on offense, but definitely better on defense. Uh, and I think that definitely balances things out. All right. Well, give me your final prediction. How does the season end for Kansas? Uh, I'm going to be a little bit of a downer. I think this season ends in heartbreak in the Elite Eight again when Kansas plays a team that can hit 11 to 12 threes in a game, and that team's going to do exactly that. Kansas is down by 8 to 10 at half, and they can't quite recover because they just don't have the three-pointers to match. I think that's how the season can end. I think that'd be my prediction. 
not to say this team can't win a championship because I think this year in college basketball, everyone is pretty vulnerable. Even if you do have some really good teams like Duke and Louisville and Gonzaga. But I think, I think Kansas is going to get caught in the elite eight again. All right. Well, you never know. Uh, maybe Devin Dotson will just shoot enough to, uh, to guide them farther. You never know. Maybe so. This, this team is as good as I think as good as anybody in the country. They have a fair, as fair shot as anybody else to, to cut down the nets come, uh, come that first weekend in April. All right. Well, this has been great, man. I appreciate the time tonight. Is there anything we should check out from you on, uh, on the website? Podcast every Monday and Friday. I'd also like to shout out my chief's podcast, a friend of mine, Caleb Durland. We do that show together. Um, so that was awesome. You know, chief's winning the Super Bowl and all. So that was a good I heard, time. I heard. Yes. Um, that was, that was a fun time. The parade was like, approximately antarctic temperatures but uh it, it was a fun time and then uh you can find me on twitter at fields underscore lando all right go do that keep up the great work sir and we'll have to do this again soon yeah for sure thank you all right that'll do it for today's episode of the chase thomas podcast thank you uh to the wonderful guests for coming on today's show thank you uh to my wonderful listeners for listening to today's episode uh, i greatly appreciate it um if you like today's episode leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple. It would be great. Um, it helps the show continue to grow and I would very much appreciate it. Uh, you can also support the show on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Um, for as little as $5 a month, it helps the show keep the lights on. So that would be a great help to me as well. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Chase underscore Thomas. You could go to ChaseThomasPodcast.com, which has all of my stuff, all my episodes ever. Um, links to everything that you need um, and all of my writing that uh, I'm doing fairly often these days um, on the NFL, on NBA, on college football, on pro wrestling. I write about everything. I write a lot. Um, so go read me on that front. So if you're not tired of listening to me, you can also read me. Um, so that's awesome. But uh, I think that's enough self-promotion from me for one episode. Uh, I hope you continue listening. That would be great. And uh, I will talk to you all again very soon. Thanks, guys. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.